Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And in December of 2018, so fairly recently, there was a Google Doodle about Teresa Carreño in celebration of her 165th birthday. And as I often do when there is a cool one that pops up that I don't know about, I start noodling around looking for info about that person or topic. And as I read more and more about Teresa Carreño, I kept wondering why on earth her life story has not made been made into a, a fantastical biopic. Um, and as I told friends about it, they were like the same. They were like, when is this going to be a movie? I'm like, I don't know, but it should be. Uh, because not only was she the most famous pianist of her day, she is considered to be Venezuela's first international superstar. And her personal life was just as compelling as her public persona. So she jumped to the top of my list of subjects. Uh, before we get into her life, I just want to make a very brief disclaimer. There is discussion of some domestic violence in this episode. We keep it quite brief. It is not terribly long or detailed, but just know that going in. Maria Teresa Gertrudis de Jesus Carreño García de Sena was born on December 22, 1853 in Caracas, Venezuela. Her father, Manuel Antonio Carreño, was a politician. He was the Venezuelan Minister of Finance, and he also served as president of the National Bank. And he published a book on manners. But he also played the piano and wrote music in addition to all of that. And in spite of having all these things that he was doing, he was good at that one, too. Yeah, and his book on manners was apparently very, very popular. Like, it became kind of everybody's handbook for how to be a a proper person. Uh, And it was from her father, Manuel, that Teresa first started learning to play the piano. Because of the family's very comfortable economic status, there were two pianos in the home, including a concert grand piano, and the entire family was musical. So from birth, music was absolutely all around her. And according to her father, Teresa began to move in rhythm to music as a tiny, tiny baby. Like, he saw in her, he felt that she clearly had an instinct for music. And she also started playing simple melodies by ear on the piano by the time she was four. Shortly before she turned six, Manuel was starting to teach his daughter, but soon he brought in another teacher as well, a pianist from Germany named Julius Hohennes. And with this new teacher, she was learning really, really quickly and mastering works that were composed by Bach, Chopin, and Mendelssohn, among many others. By the time she was seven, she had started writing her own compositions and would also play improvisationally for friends and family. They would challenge her by giving her a theme and then watch her come up with her own original music just quickly and confidently. Yeah, she apparently played in terms of confidence, like someone who had been playing for decades. She just had no hesitation. There was nothing shy about her. She would not hem and haw. She would literally just be like, okay, and then set to it. Um, In 1862, Manuel moved the family to New York City. And of course, uh, you may have noticed that is while the U.S. was in the midst of the Civil War. And Manuel was motivated in part by a desire to continue his daughter's musical education and expand her opportunities. But Venezuela was also in the midst of its own upheaval. The Federal War, which ran from 1859 to 1863, was the result of decades-long tensions that had roots in the dissolution of the Republic in 1830. So, 
this is not a Venezuelan history episode, so the broad strokes version of the situation is that by the time of the federal war, uh, the conservative party championed a central government, and the liberal movement wanted more regional self-government. There are a lot of other finesse elements to it. But Manuel, at this point, as a long-term government official, had a vested interest in getting out of the country as things started to escalate. New York opened up whole new musical opportunities for the eight-year-old Teresa. She started taking lessons from Louis Moreau Goschok. He was a New Orleans-born musician who had made a name for himself as a pianist and a composer. And Teresa's father invited him to hear his daughter play. After that meeting, they made an agreement for lessons. And Teresa Carreño would often cite Gottschalk as her ideal as a pianist, and he influenced her work greatly. Although it is actually unclear how long he taught her or how many, like, sort of formal lessons were actually given. He definitely exposed her to a lot of new music, and he really gave her an education in playing not just with precision and technique, but also serving as an interpreter between the music printed on the page and the listener's ear. It would also seem that a child prodigy such as Carreño would be giving concerts, but her father really resisted that idea at first. It wasn't until the family had a financial crisis that he finally consented to his daughter appearing on the stage, and at that point it was because they desperately needed money. On November 25th, 1862, Teresa gave a concert at Irving Hall in New York. And the evening's program included works composed by Rossini, Thalberg, Hummel, and her teacher, Gottschalk. And she also played a waltz that she had composed herself and named after her mentor. So that was Gottschalk Waltz Opus 1. The evening was a huge success, and booking requests poured in for Teresa after that. And over the next three weeks, she gave five more concerts and published the Gottschalk Waltz, which sold out repeatedly. And we're going to include a link to a recording of that waltz in the show notes. From that point, she was not even 10 years old, but she had started a real career as a concert pianist. She toured around the U.S. Northeast. She was invited to the White House, where she played for President Abraham Lincoln. As an adult, she wrote about the experience and how kind and unassuming the first family was. But the White House grand piano was so terribly out of tune that after playing just a few pieces, she had to stop, and she refused to play anymore. (laughs) Yeah, she found that a jarring and unpleasant experience in terms of the actual playing. She really enjoyed visiting the White House and meeting everyone, but the playing was absolutely non-delightful. From 1864 to 1865, there was a brief hiatus in her appearances. Her family at that point had become concerned about the toll that being constantly in the spotlight was taking on her, because remember, she was still a child. So they made the decision to put her career temporarily on hold so that she could regroup and focus on her health and well-being. By 1866, she was back on the job, though. She started to go to bookings outside the United States, Carrying a letter of recommendation from her mentor, Goschok, she went to Cuba for a short tour. Then her father booked her on a European tour, and that really changed her life. The 1866 European tour began in Paris. And while the Carreños were there, Teresa met an assortment of luminaries of the European music scene. So Hector Berlioz, Giacchino Rossini, and previous podcast subject Franz Liszt all made the young virtuosos acquaintance. There's a little bit of a calendar disparity Uh, when it comes to Teresa's social contacts during this time. It's mentioned in several of her biographies that she became friends with and started teaching Blandine Olivier, who was Liszt's adult daughter. But she had died back in 1862. It's possible that there's some confusion between her and her sister, Cosima Wagner, but that's not clear. 
Yeah, that's one of those things that appeared in kind of the main biography that was written of Carreño, and then it's gotten repeated over time. And I don't know why no one ever did the calendar math to go, that's not possible. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a, like I said, it's a little unclear. But in any case, Liz was either convinced by a daughter, as is often relayed in that version of the story, or simply of his own accord, moved to offer to take Teresa on as a pupil. But she had to move to Rome, where he was living at the time. Teresa's father, Manuel, turned down this offer. Liszt was not the only famous musician who offered to teach Teresa. Giacchino Rossini, upon realizing that she had talent as a singer as well, began giving her voice lessons to develop her mezzo-soprano. And he actually told her that what she should really be doing was pursuing a singing career. The family decided to stay in Paris, and they lived there for several years. To continue her education, she auditioned for the Conservatoire de Paris, and she was denied on the claim that she was already past the level expected of graduates. But she did take lessons from one of Chopin's former students, French composer Georges Matthias. And coming up, we're going to talk more about Teresa's time in Paris, including both success and tragedy. But first, we will take a little break to hear from one of the sponsors that keeps Stuff You Missed in History class going. <laughs> While the Carreños were settling into their life in France, the family was hit with a tragedy when Teresa's mother, Clorinda, died suddenly in September of 1866. Manuel and Teresa remained in Paris, and they continued to work on building Teresa's concert bookings. And over the next two years, she worked continuously in venues in France. And in 1868, she was booked on a tour in London, where she met Russian pianist and composer Anton Rubinstein, who introduced himself after seeing one of her concerts. Rubinstein did not formally teach Teresa, but he would give her notes on her playing. He would listen and then write up some notes and they would discuss. And the two of them became very good friends. And Teresa ranked Rubinstein right below Gottschalk as a mentor, and Teresa and her father Manuel stayed in London as she learned from him in this way. Throughout all of this, Teresa was making a really nice living. In addition to the income from her concerts, Manuel was also working as a teacher, and the father and daughter were welcomed in the wealthiest houses in Europe. Her talent opened a lot of doors and gave both of them a life of luxury. Teresa had begun her performing career as a soloist, but during her time in Europe, as she became more and more popular, she began to be invited to participate in more collaborative performances with other musicians. Maurice Strakosh, who began his career as a child pianist as well, but then transitioned primarily to the role of promoter for other musicians, really saw the financial potential in adding Teresa to group concerts, because again, she was still very young and could play with people much older than her. Soon, Strakosh had the 15-year-old Carreño touring the Netherlands, Switzerland, and France, along with other popular performers. In 1872, Teresa's musical career shifted as she made use of the training that she had received from Giacchino Rossini, and she made her debut as an opera singer. Her first role was Marguerite in a production of Les Huguenots, which is an opera about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. This show was mounted by the Mapleson Operatic Concert Tours Company. But even as she ventured into opera... Teresa was still booking performances as a pianist. And in 1872, she once again toured with a roster of talented artists assembled by Maurice Strakosh, this time on a tour of the United States. And it was on this tour that she met violinist Emile Charret. And the two fell in love on tour, and they married on July 13, 1873, 
right after they returned to London. Manuel Carreño was not happy about this marriage at all. He thought that Emil was a bad match for his daughter, in part because he was kind of a mess and not very financially stable. Teresa told her father of how she had taken care of him on tour, making sure that his clothes that needed mending were attended to and seeing that he ate properly. And she was completely taken with him. But her father saw all of this as red flag after red flag. He told her, quote, if you feel sorry for this young man's neglected condition, by all means, sew on his buttons, mend his clothes, buy his food even, but don't on that account marry him. Of course, she married him anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Teresa and Emil had their first child, a daughter named Emilita, in May 1874. But even as they celebrated their new family, there was also a loss. Manuel Carreño died on September 4th of that year, and Teresa blamed herself. She was afraid that her union with Sare and the stress that it had caused her father had led to the decline in his health. While she was still grieving over her father, she started another tour of the United States in 1875. This time, she was booked both for piano and singing engagements. While she and Emil had fallen in love on tour, life on the road this second time around really strained and ultimately ended their marriage. By the time the 1875 tour was over, so was that relationship. Teresa first traveled to New York after the separation and then to Boston, which is where she had decided she wanted to live. Yeah, she kind of picked out a place where she thought, like, it's not tied to any of my previous stuff. I can just make a new start after this horrible marriage fell apart, and won't it be great? Uh, The transition to living in the U.S. once again came with another upswing in Teresa Creño's opera career. She performed with companies in Boston and New York, but she always felt that even though people really, really thought she was fantastic at it, that her singing would just never be as good as her piano playing. And throughout all of this time, the pull to New York had continued to grow. So she didn't really stay in Boston for very long, although while she was there, she did strike up a romance with a baritone from Italy named Giovanni Tagliapietra. In 1876, she became the celebrity face of the Weber Piano Company, contracted as its representative, and moved to New York once that deal was struck. The owner of the company, Albert Weber, felt that his pianos never sounded better than when Teresa was playing them, and so that was what she played for her concerts under the terms of the contract. That business arrangement went on for the next 14 years. Yeah, it was clearly a pretty good a pretty good uh, business relationship. And that same year, Carreño and Taglia Pietra were married. And this marriage lasted longer than Teresa's first, And the two had three children together, although their first daughter, Luisa, was born in 1878, and she died as a child in 1881. Their second daughter, Teresita, was born in 1882, and a son, Giovanni, was born in 1885. After Teresa moved to New York, she became close with the McDowell family. She had been invited by a friend and fellow musician to hear one of his students play the piano, and that student was Edward McDowell, who was son of Fanny and Thomas McDowell. Teresa became very close with all of them and remained lifelong friends with them, so much so that she sometimes chose where she would live based on how close it was to their home. And she became Edward's teacher and mentor. Yeah, his name is always linked with hers in music history, and that is why. 
the Carreño Donaldi Operatic Gem Company, which opened at Booth's Theater in New York in November 1881, was another project that she took on. Uh, the Donaldi in the name came from Italian operatic prima donna Emma Donaldi, and Carreño, Donaldi, and a handful of other musicians toured with this company around the United States. The New York Times reviewed the Carreño Donaldi Company's opening and wrote this of Trace's performance, quote, Madame Carreño needs no further commendation. She is unquestionably the most accomplished of our feminine pianists and always brings to her performance abundant strength, native musical appreciation, a perfect technique, and a personal and artistic charm that give her a position which she alone enjoys. Publicly, Carreño's life at this point seemed amazing. It was all praise and success, and her performances were all basically perfect. But privately, things were getting quite dark. Uh, Tag, which is what Giovanni was nicknamed since not everyone could say that long Italian name, was a very moody man. And while he could be attentive and adoring, his behavior could turn sullen and even abusive when he was unhappy. And he started drinking heavily, which was hurting his singing voice, which made him angrier, which made him drink more. He got kind of in this horrible cycle. And at one point when Teresa was pregnant with one of their children, he got so angry that he threatened her with a knife and he said that he was going to kill her. And she relays this as a moment when she was absolutely terrified and just froze in fear and was just kind of unable to do anything. And thankfully, apparently that was enough to satisfy his cruelty for the moment, and Tag left the house and went out instead of following through on this threat. The Venezuelan president, Joaquin Crespo, invited Teresa to tour Venezuela in 1885. And this was a really successful enterprise, so much so that she and Giovanni started an opera company in Caracas. While the project started out with a lot of promise due to the impressive talent the couple was able to recruit from around the world, the financial side really didn't go very well. Venezuela's politics grew volatile against Crespo, who was one of the opera company's main sponsors. And the opera company itself became the target of threats and insulting press as a consequence. In 1887, Teresa gave up on the opera company. She and Giovanni went back to New York, but their already strained marriage was really at its breaking point. Teresa threw herself into her work and just practiced relentlessly every day. Uh, Spoiler alert, this marriage was doomed, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, we will pause and have another quick sponsor break. So Tag, Teresa's husband, had not had any of the praise in Venezuela that Teresa had initially received. He had been rude and antagonistic with her publicly, which had been a source of huge embarrassment for her. And audiences had disliked him from the beginning. Not long after they returned to New York, Giovanni's brother Arturo arrived, and he was absolutely horrified at how his brother treated Teresa. It was pretty well known within Teresa's social circle that Tag physically abused her. In letters that were written by Fanny McDowell to Carreño later in their lives, she referenced things like black eyes and bloody noses that Tag had given Teresa. And when he arrived, Arturo stepped into the role of protector, and he strongly suggested that the couple should separate, which they finally did. For some time, Teresa had been thinking once again of going to Europe, and in 1889, she set her sights on Berlin, She reached out to Hermann Wolf, a promoter there, to plan her return to the European stage. And this catalyzed a long-term business partnership between the two of them. He managed her appearances from 1889 on. November 18, 1889 was her first concert in Berlin, and it launched a new phase of tours all through Europe 
and Russia and established her once again as a virtuoso performer. Teresa was not the only performer that Wolf acted as agent for. And in 1891, she met another pianist who he managed named Eugene Dalbert, who was 11 years her junior. And the two hit it off and they were married in 1892. That same year, they welcomed their first child together, a daughter named Eugenia. Two years later, another daughter named Herto was born. And while it was Teresa's third marriage, it was Dalbert's fourth. And merging their families, Dalbert also had children from previous relationships, proved extremely challenging. There's one account that says something to the effect uh, of Teresa saying to her husband, my children and your children can't get along with our children. Like, there were just so many kids to merge, and none of them were getting along, and it just sounded like stress and chaos. The couple moved to a home in Kozvig, a town in Saxony, and their house, which was built in 1873, was named Villa Teresa. They lived there together for two years before the marriage split up. After she was single again, Teresa finished out the 19th century with a very busy booking schedule touring the world. Okay, once again, there's a marriage. (laughs) Uh, In 1902, Carreño married for a fourth and final time, this time to Arturo Tagliapietra. That last name is not a mistake. It is the brother of her second husband that we mentioned earlier. Arturo had moved to Germany in 1901 to help Teresa manage her business affairs. She was really bad at keeping track of things like scheduling and her teaching appointments and the other bookings that were constantly filling up her calendar. And his arrival was like a breath of fresh air in her life. And before long, the two decided that they wanted to be together. This was kind of a almost scandalous in some ways, not because he had been the brother of her second husband, but people were like, you're both kind of old. Why are you bothering? <laughs> she was 49 at the time, which to me doesn't seem that old. But uh, it, it seems that uh, as though Teresa finally found the right match because this was genuinely a very happy and loving and caring marriage. There was a huge gala in Berlin for her 50th anniversary as a performer, and that was celebrated in 1912. Germany really loved her, and it was there that she was given the nickname Valkyrie of the Piano. But that love didn't last forever. World War I led to another move for Karenio and her family. As a foreigner living in Germany, she was viewed with a lot of suspicion. And in 1914, she decided to move once again to the United States. In the winter of 1916-1917, she performed with the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall, or Carnegie if you've listened to our Andrew Carnegie episodes. Uh, This proved to be one of her last times appearing on stage. In the spring of 1917, she became ill. She had traveled to Cuba in March of that year for a tour, but before the tour started, she had been having problems that were publicly reported as some kind of eye trouble. She canceled all of her dates and returned to New York. Her health declined really rapidly from that point, and eventually she became paralyzed. She died on June 12, 1917, in her home at 720 West End Avenue in New York City, and her husband Arturo was with her to the end. The legacy that Teresa Carreño left is significant. In addition to playing, as we mentioned, she started writing music when she was a child, and she was a prolific composer. And while she is known for her many compositions for piano, she also wrote string quartets and orchestra pieces. She composed in total more than 75 pieces, many of which are still performed. Carreño also passed the musical tradition on by teaching and mentoring other performers. One of her most well-known protégés ended up being composer Edward McDowell, who she had known and taught since he was a boy. We talked about that family earlier. 
And Villa Teresa, the home that she and Eugene spent their brief marriage in, is now home to the Teresa Carreño Society. It is a spectacularly beautiful space. Uh, I have not been there, but I have looked at a lot of pictures of it online. The main floor is preserved as it was when Teresa lived in the home, and there's a museum upstairs covering the lives of both Teresa and Eugene, because as we mentioned, he was also a musician and quite popular. The gardens surrounding the house are now a park, and chamber concerts and other events are often held on the grounds of the house. After she died, Teresa Carreño was cremated. And although she had often said that she wanted her final resting place to be in Venezuela, her remains didn't go there for 20 years. In 1938, after only minor amounts of lobbying, the Venezuelan government welcomed her home. Her ashes were placed in an urn created by sculptor Nicolas Veloz, and her daughter, Teresita, who had also become a concert pianist, was on hand for the ceremony. Her ashes were initially placed atop a marble pedestal in the Cementerio de Sur in Caracas, but in 1977, they were moved to the Pantheon Nacional, which is reserved for Venezuela's national heroes. Teresa. Uh, there are recordings of her that you can find online. Like I said, we'll have the the composition that she, the waltz that she composed, uh, her first one linked, and I will try to find some additional ones of her performing. Uh, so you can hear sort of her incredibly expressive and also just technically really, really accomplished uh, work. Yeah. I'm doing a weird Christmas card roundup for um, our, <laughs> our listener mail. Christmas is past, of course, but because there was a lot of travel and stuff going on, in uh, at the end of the year, I didn't get to open a lot of them until I came back in the new year. So uh, I will buzz through a few of these. Um, our listener Tess, along with her cats Bill, Pippi, and Buster, sent us a card. She has some very pretty babies, one of which is a buff calico that I think I would steal. Uh, thank you so much. She wished us Happy New Year. Uh, we also got... A card, this is a repeat offender, uh, <laughs> Brandy and Phoenix the Cat, who we talked about her card last year on the podcast, and she said, uh, thanks for mentioning last year's card on the show. It gave me warm fuzzies. All the best to you and yours this holiday season. Again, another cat that I would probably steal if given half a chance. I don't really want to steal people's pets. I just really, really like them and want to hug them. Uh, we also got a lovely card from our listener, Rebecca, from Detroit, who said, thank you so much for a year of First Rate History podcast. I appreciate all your hard work and Merry Christmas. And it's a beautiful Christmas scene. And then uh, we had a lot more than this, but I don't want to drag on forever and ever and ever. So I will close out with um, the one that was probably my favorite just in terms of the card itself. It is from our listener, uh, Danielle, and it says, thank you for all you do, but what the card actually is, is the Edward Gorey fruitcake illustration, <laughs> which is so funny because it's a bunch of people dragging their fruitcake to a hole in the ice to get rid of it forever. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who sent us cards. I always say it, but it bears repeating that I am always incredibly touched that people take time out of their lives just to share something like that with us and sit down and put an address on an envelope and write a cute note and, and send it off. I'm not good at that and keeping up with it in my daily life, so I appreciate it when other people do it. Uh, if you would like to write to us via email, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us pretty much everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can also visit our website, mistinhistory.com, where you can find all of the shows that have ever existed, show notes for the episodes Tracy and I have worked on, and occasionally other little odds and ends. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to the show, that sounds great to me. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find your podcasts. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 